Good morning, church. I'm going to be reading the word for us this morning. Would you please stand up and as we read together? I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, from verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are... But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were noble, were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness in sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen to that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we can be seated. Lord, thank you so much for this glorious morning you gave us. Thank you for allowing us to come together as a church family and love on another and support each other. I pray for your wisdom in all of our hearts this morning. I pray that we would only get that wisdom from you and we glorify you um, for it. I pray that you'd speak through Matt to our hearts and we would not leave this building cha um, not changed. We would leave changed and we would leave with a renewed heart um, of wisdom for your word. And we'd leave um, with the desire to tell those who don't know you about you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'll be preaching about wisdom today. <laughs> So, welcome to our church. All right. Guys, we're taking the next several months to uh, look at the traits of a life that comes from belief in the gospel. We've been using this term, the gospel doctrine, for uh, since be the beginning of the year, uh, ever since we launched into a long-term, mutual-together commitment to not only preaching, teaching, and believing the gospel doctrines, but then to live our lives, not just here in this church on Sundays, and not only in your community groups during the week, but to live your lives in every area and in all times, cultivating a gospel culture, a gospel life, showing up as traits, as fruit. It's a tree, it's an apple tree. How do you know? Because it's, there's, there's apples hanging on its branches. It's bearing fruit. 
And so we have been using that term. Uh, for the next several months, literally months, we're going to be spending in this time in this series called Gospel Traits. Um, we are, every truth that I'll be preaching, and indeed every truth that a Christian believes that comes as part of Christianity, it, it comes from the basic foundation of the gospel. That's why like, the songs that our worship team chooses to sing uh, often have very, very simple repeated phrases. Jesus, let it be Jesus, let it be Jesus, let it be Jesus. Whether I live, whether I die, wherever I work, whatever I do, whoever I'm married to, however that goes, whatever I'm doing, let it be about and springing forth from the life of Jesus given to me. And so the sermon series is called simply Gospel Traits. A subtitle for that will be Eternal Living in Everyday Life. We, we live as ambassadors, as living previews of an eternity that is on the way. We are to live. This gospel culture is, is a preview, almost like a movie trailer, showing the world around us that this is what the oncoming eternal kingdom looks like. And we're going to live that way more and more in this everyday, ordinary life. Without the gospel being the central foundational thing, then any and all morality that a Christian has is no better than all other moralities, any other morality. There are plenty of religions. There are plenty of godless philosophies and worldviews that say you shouldn't lie. Lying is bad. That's not unique to Christianity. And so if we don't lie but are committed to tell the truth and it's not, there's not a straight line back to why we tell the truth because of the gospel, then we are essentially engaging in a godless religion whether we slap Christianity's name on it or not. And so the first trait, the first mark, the first identifying characteristic of a Christian, of a, of a flourishing and healthy Christian church, of a gospel culture, is that the gospel is central. The gospel is central. It's the first thing on the list, and it's the first thing in front of everything on the list. And it filters through and colors everything in the life of a Christian. The way we think, the way we feel, it, it governs and, and determines how we speak and how we act, what we do and what we don't do. It's called gospel fluency. One of the traits of a gospel culture that we want to commit to is to be a people who are devoted to gospel fluency. This idea that the language of your mind, the, the, the dominant language of your mind, the dominant language of your heart as you interact with, with God and yourself in the world would be the language of the gospel, that it would be the truth that filters into and governs everything. Now, we, we have, I think, five principal ki like guiding convictions for this series. Uh, we'll, we're we're going to see this a lot. If those of you with phones who like to take pictures, go ahead and take a picture of it, right? Uh, and, and, and put it someplace so you can remind yourself. But number one, these traits are already ours. We, we grow in them as we practice them. So these aren't traits that only superior or more mature Christians have. If you are a Christian, if you really are a saved believer in Jesus Christ, then these things all summer long, everything in the Bible, these traits of a person who believes the gospel and is living it, these are already yours. And we grow in them as we practice. And you won't grow unless you practice. Do you, do you know what the vast majority of practice looks like and feels like? Any of you, raise your hand if you've played a musical instrument. 
Raise your hand if you play, right? Uh, maybe, raise your hand if you've been on a, like a sports team or done athletics. Cool. When you practice, what does most, what does the vast majority of practice feel like? Failure. Practice feels like failure most of the time. It's trial and error, trying and not succeeding, trying and doing a little better, trying and now I didn't make that mistake, but I've still got these mistakes. I've got these flaws. The vast majority of practice is tough and it feels like you're not very good at it. And the only, the only path to feeling like you're actually getting good at something is working through that time period where you feel like you're not very good at this. And so for us, as we look at these traits, some of us are going to go throughout this, this sermon series, we're going to go, yeah, man, I feel like I'm really on board with that one. I feel like the Lord is really just leading me through this, and I'm in maturity here. And another thing, some of us are going to go, oh, I am so far off the mark. I'm so far from this. I've tried to do that. I've tried to think that. I've tried to say that. It's never gone well for me. I don't, I don't think I'm very good at that. And the temptation is, when you try and fail, the sting of that shame, the sting of that embarrassment and failure is so strong that it tempts us to not try again. But try we must because that's the path toward growth. But these are already your traits if you're in Christ. Number two, these traits apply to every area and every day of our lives. For the Christian, there is no secular and sacred, sacred divide. The, this room that you're sitting in is no more and no less sacred than your own bedroom or your dining room or the break room at work, or your car as you sit in traffic. For the Christian, there is no divide between secular activities and sacred activities. These traits apply to us in every area and every day of our lives. Number three, Christ is responsible for our perfection. So we can focus on practice, right? We practice toward and for perfection, but we're not being held responsible by, by God to get this right and be perfect. What we are charged by God to do is to be faithful and put these things into practice and try. It's Christ who does the perfecting. Number four, we commit to the long gospel journey with others moving in the same direction. This practice, some of these practices you will be done by yourself in life. You'll, you'll practice these things. You'll practice your private time in prayer, in your prayer closet, and in solitude. You'll practice holiness when no one else is looking and no one else can see what you're doing. But much of the Christian life, much of the fruit that we are to bear is practiced and can only be practiced with other people. Years ago, I spent about a year, a few years ago, uh, uh, learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, it was great, but I'm old and, and I, I hurt myself uh, sleeping. So I had to quit. But when I... I really loved it. I, I wish I could do it again, right? But I, I was frustrated because I would want to practice it and, 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 and learn more outside of class, but I had no one who was willing to wrestle with me and, 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 and let me practice. I couldn't practice unless I had someone else there to wrestle with, to grapple with. And so we as Christians, we are committed to this long gospel journey in which the things we are to practice and grow in can only be done when we are with one another, to be with one another. And number five, the victory of each new day is secured by Christ's victory on the last day. There is not a day in this world, as long as you're breathing this air on this side of heaven, there's not a day that you will arrive at any of these traits in perfection. You'll never be done here. And while that may, like face value for some of us go, that feels so defeating. I'll never get there in this life. Why would I even start? Because Christ's victory on the last day, which is already guaranteed, 
It's already promised. It's already a done deal. That is our reason for the everyday walk, the everyday practice. So each new day, when you feel, you wake up already defeated, already encumbered by depression or anxiety or difficulty, feelings of failure, feelings of hopelessness, the only way you enter into that day toward any sort of victory is having a sincere, deeply convicted belief that Christ is victorious. So today, our sermon is on the centrality of the gospel. It's the gospel trait of gospel centrality. Here's the big idea. Knowing nothing but the gospel, you'll have all the wisdom and power that you could ever need. If you knew, and if you were an expert, if you were a master in no other knowledge, in no other information except that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he was crucified in my place and he rose again, securing me not only my forgiveness but my eternal life. If you know nothing but that, you can be the wisest and most powerful person in the world. As this passage, which we just read, and as I'm going to preach, Elon Musk won't have anything on you. Now, it won't feel like that in this world because the world is looking at you and looking at Elon Musk. And it's clear, it's sensible, it's reasonable to go, um, yeah, I mean, you're nice and all, but you're no Elon Musk. But there's a different person speaking here who has a different way of seeing things and a different way of judging things and a different way of expressing quality and value. So I read this week about a church in, in England um, little village church, uh, a chapel, brick chapel, very historic, and it had like traditional ivy growing on its walls and everything, as like a lot of English villages do. Um, and and above, above the chapel doors, and with ivy kind of ringing it, uh, they had etched into the stone these words, we preach Christ crucified. I'm like, I'm on board. They, the, the godly men of that church, when they built that and wrote those words in, they wanted to make sure that everyone was clear, you're coming in here, this is what you're getting. We preach Christ crucified. Now, over the years, apparently, the ivy grew, and someone wasn't doing a good job of, you know, doing, you know, the scissor work on the ivy or, or whatever. So sometime after that generation, ivy grew over, and, and then the sign simply read, we preach Christ, which... Again, I, I think I'm pretty much on board with that. Depends on what you mean by we preach Christ. And apparently in the history of this church at that time, a new generation of men came and they preached Christ. They preached Christ the good example. They preached Christ the ideal teacher. They preached Christ the humanitarian. But they no longer preached Christ God, the God-man. Over time, guess what happened? Ivy grew. And finally, what the, the sign read was, we preach. And they most certainly did. We preach. The church ended up preaching faithfully. Philosophy, economics, social gospel, reli religious reviews of books and society. And maybe, essentially, that stands as a kind of illustration of how man's philosophy, human wisdom affects the gospel. The wisdom of mankind is about and only about the business of crowding out the gospel. 
adding to it, subtracting from it, modifying it, trying to improve it, or trying to completely erase it. That's what human wisdom naturally, inevitably does. Paul says, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in the, city of, the ancient city of Corinth. They're called the Corinthians. And this is a, this is a wild church, y'all. It is, it is some Jerry Springer stuff going on in this church. They're, they're infighting, they're boasting, they're bragging about who their previous pastor was or who baptized them or which guy on Twitter they follow and which conferences they go to and which theological stream they're part of. And not only that, they're like, they're getting drunk at communion because they serve real wine, y'all. And they're not like, not in these little piddly cups. They're like, hey, I brought my own communion wine. I'm going to worship God a lot. There, there's sexual immorality happening. And, and these people are boasting and bragging even in their sin, believing that the more they sin, the more God has to forgive. And therefore, God is more glorified. They are a mess because they've been influenced and overtaken by human thinking. They've a, they're reading their Bible, but they're interpreting and determining that what the Bible says is governed by how they think and how they feel about it. And so Paul is helping them by telling them the gospel. Look in verse 18. Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross. That's the gospel. The message of the cross. In modern terms, that would be the message of the electric chair. Our Messiah was convicted wrongfully, and he was sent to the electric chair, and he was murdered with the death penalty. The message of our Christ's electric chair. The message of the cross is the gospel. The message of the cross to the unbelieving world is stupid. The, the Greek word for folly here in this passage, he's going to be, keep on using it, literally is the Greek word that leads us to our word moron or moronic. Literally, intellectually disabled. You're an idiot, according to the world. Nevertheless, Paul says, this same message is the power of God that saves God's people. This is the message that saves you. If you know this, and not just know it, but if you know this and believe in this and bank your whole life on it, finding God in Christ to be the most ultimately satisfying and worthy and powerful and authoritative person, and you would follow him anywhere and do whatever he says. This message, that's how God saves you. It's through this message that Christ forgives your sin and makes you his. I don't want us to ever assume the gospel because we can say a word over and over again until it sounds funny, right? You ever done that? You said a word so many times that all of a sudden, just the, the sound itself, just, I, I'm talking about my pulpit, and I, once I say pulpit about six or seven times, all of a sudden, pulpit, it's, like, it's just a dumb word now. And in the church can, can make the gospel a, a, a silly word, a, a, a word that we throw around a lot, but we, we're assuming it, and it loses its power, it loses its clarity. What the world thinks is stupid is that God first of all, exists. And second of all, that God would become a man. That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like fairy tale stuff. And that God would become a man and he would choose to come 2,000 years ago back when there's no internet and mass communication. If he really had a message to get out to the world, he would have come today. Or he would have come back then and just invented the internet for his message. He, seemed, he didn't seem very smart. He seemed very ineffective, inefficient. You say that's your God? Pfft, idiot. 
Elon Musk is way smarter than him. That this God would then not defeat his enemies, but be martyred for his enemies. We believe the gospel that says this man died and then came back to life. We all know that scientifically is unreasonable. It's, un, it's an untenable position. This mess, and, and if we believe in this invisible God that none of us have ever seen, that we believe we will go to an infinitely glorious and eternal kingdom where we'll never get sick, never die, there will be no more war, no more strife, no more sadness, no more tears, and God will live with us. That's stupid, the world says. And honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't harshly blame them. I don't harshly blame the world because I was once dead in my trespasses too. And I felt that same way. I, I know how stupid it sounded. I know how stupid it felt. And the default, expected, and unsurprising, please remember, it's the default, expected, and unsurprising response to the message of the cross that it's stupid. And you believe that? You're stupid. Do not be surprised by that. Verse 19, Paul says, it's written. When he says it's written, he's saying, God said this already. It is written. It's written where? It's written in the Bible. What is written? What has God already said? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is that written? When did God say that? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 14. You can write that down. Go look at it later. I'm going to have a bunch of scripture that we're not even going to see on the screen today, so listen up. Write your notes if you want. Jeremiah 29, 14. See, long, long ago before this, Israel, which was God's chosen people, they were a small tribe. They were a nothing tribe. They were pretty weak. They weren't all that special. They weren't special at all. There are other bigger, greater, cooler nations with like way smarter people, way more powerful stuff, right? But he chose them, the Israelites. And in, their, in this time of Jeremiah, there was a neighboring tribe called the, the Assyrians, and they were threatening Israel. They were going to come and, and make war against Israel and demolish them. And listen, the Assyrians were more numerous. They were more warlike. They had more weaponry. They had more generals with strategy and tactics. And and the Israel, I mean, the Israelites were to be defeated. They were going to be overrun. No more Israel. And so the Israelites said, ah, you know what would be smart? Let's make an alliance with Egypt because Egypt is way stronger than the Assyrians. Let's make, let's make an alliance. Let's, let's partner with them and we'll do some stuff for them if they'll promise to whoop the Assyrians for us. And in response to this, God is very upset. God's very mad, in fact. And he says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God is mad because these are his chosen people. Israel is his chosen people. They're meant to represent the wisdom and the power of God and his wisdom and power are meant to be known by the world through his small and weak people. What God intends to do is show his glory by Israel doing what seems absolutely insensible and stupid and unproductive by initiating a month of prayer and fasting and making sacrifices and calling upon God to save them. That's not preparing for what you guys are. You guys are stupid. You're, gonna, you're totally going to get overrun now. God means to show his glory that when they do that stupid, foolish thing, he then overcomes the Assyrians so that the rest of the world sees and goes, well, clearly Israelite, the, Isra the Israelites won, but it's not them who want God. Their God answered. Their God did something. Wow. 
But instead, instead of praying, instead of seeking God's will, they went to Egypt. And, and listen, the Israelites by that time, they were well acquainted with their history with Egypt. Instead of, instead of trusting and calling on the name of the God who already whooped Egypt, he already whooped them. He used a stuttering shepherd who's in his 40s, 50s, 60s. He used that guy and slaves to overthrow the mightiest kingdom in the world. But we kind of forgot about that whole thing. We kind of don't really believe that. That became a fairy tale to these people by then. And so they went to who they thought was wise and powerful. And so God's, God's making a promise to the Israelites in, in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 3 through 5, he follows that up. This whole, I will put to shame the wise, I'll, I'll dismantle, I'll thwart the, discerning of, the discernment of the discerning. He's talking to the Israelites who made those decisions. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to let your plan work. I'm going to foil your plan. Egypt is not going to be able to save you. And I'm actually going to let the Assyrians come and wreck your day. You're very foolish. You thought you're wise. You think you're going to be powerful. No, you're going to be very weak because that's what you are. So Paul's bringing the message of God to speak to us who believe and those who don't believe. And what we don't believe is that God is wise. Instead, human beings are tempted to believe that we are wise. Verse 20, Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He's calling on the elite. He's calling on the smartest. Where are the Elon Musks? Where are the Bill Gates? Where are the Anthony Fauci's? Where, where are the political brilliant people, right? Where are the financial gurus? You, why don't you guys stand up, right? Call, I'm calling you out. Why don't you stand? Where are you? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the, of the world? This is past tense. Hasn't he already shown that the wisdom of the world is, is dumb? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through his wisdom, it pleased God, it made God happy through the folly, the foolishness, the idiocy, the stupidity of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Hasn't God shown already the wisdom of the world to actually be foolish? That their strength is actually weakness? At least in comparison to him? Moses, the stuttering shepherd, against the magicians and the great pharaoh of Egypt. The national Israelite marching band versus the impenetrable walls of Jericho. I mean, God won a battle with a marching band. That's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. <laughs> Gideon and his 300 men against the might of thousands of Midianites. David, the teenage scrawny shepherd boy against Goliath of Gath, the potentially seven or eight, maybe nine foot tall warrior, experienced warrior. Elijah, the solitary prophet against the 450 prophets of Baal. Each and every time the world shows up in great strength with the greatest minds available, and God, for the name, for his reputation and renown and glory, his team shows up with one arm tied behind their back and on their knees, and they, they haven't eaten breakfast, right? And, and then he, he, he has the victory, still. Each time 
the world who did not know God through his wisdom, God was pleased to show that their wisdom is what's stupid, what's foolish. And the pinnacle of this message, the pinnacle of God proving this yet again, the pinnacle of that is the cross. It's the message of the cross, the gospel. In verse 21, it sa- he says, it pleased God through what the world calls stupid to save those who believe him. Because in reality, in our world today, right now, there are people in your own neighborhood, own communities, in our city around us, who are sick, and they're lonely, and they're sad, and they're hungry, and they're poor. And worldly thinking, reasonable worldly thinking would go, why do these Christians who believe they have this God and they think they're so good, why would they waste a few hours on Sunday morning listening to some idiot talk from this ancient book? That's not doing any. that's not feeding anyone. You're wasting your time. In fact, many Christians have even been tempted to think, you know what, we should really be doing some good in this world. Maybe we should, like, every now and then periodically not get together for Sunday morning worship service, but why don't we, as a church, decide on this particular Sunday, we're going to break apart and go do some good stuff to glorify God and show people that God's, God's useful. And Paul goes, it pleases God to use foolish things like preaching and preaching what seems like a very foolish message to save and make enemies into his family. By the way, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I, I hope that the message of the gospel, I pray that the message of the gospel preached here would result in a life, a heart and mind that has changed so that when we depart, we go and do and demonstrate the glory and goodness and kindness of God with his works and words to those who are sick and lost and sad and lonely, right? Paul says, where are you at, guys, huh? Do you really need more evidence to be persuaded that your way of seeing and thinking and operating in this world isn't working for you? You think that learning more science and getting more technology, which, by the way, let's learn more science and get more technology. Yes, right? But you guys think that that is going to make the world ultimately, finally, better and everything will be okay. But we keep, don't we see, don't you guys see, you scribes, you elites, Every new thing we discover, we just weaponize it. We, we find a way to game that thing for our own glory, for our own wickedness, to have power or influence, have authority, to have control and over other people and have for ourselves regardless of who has not. We keep doing that. How many more times do you need God to prove that he knows what he's talking about? How many more times do you need to be humiliated before you repent and seek God and his wisdom? He says, that the Jews, they demanded signs and the Greeks sought wisdom. The unrepentant Jews who rejected Jesus, they were demanding signs and wonders. And didn't Jesus perform signs and wonders? Yeah, but not the signs and wonders that they wanted. Right? Like a cat, like, pet me, pet me, pet me. And you reach down and they claw your hand off and go, with your eyes, stupid, pet me with your eyes. Right? Like, like a crazy boyfriend or girlfriend back in high school. No, we give us signs and wonders. And Jesus goes, ha! And they go, not that one, dummy. The sign and wonder that the Jews expected, that's what they demanded, was the sign that Jesus really is the Messiah. We'll prove it. Overthrow and destroy the Romans and make Israel great again. And he goes, no, the sign and wonder you're going to get is I'm going to be defeated by the Romans. I'm going to be killed by the Romans. 
That's not what we want. And if that's your plan, then you're not the kind of God that we want because that's stupid. And we want a God who is wise like we are wise. The, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they demand wisdom. That is philosophical and, and reasonable rationality and arguments, insights. Insights and argumentation that aligned with what? Their sort of, there we go. I'm sorry, it keeps on slipping and now all of a sudden I sound much clearer. Um, insight and argument, argumentation that aligned with their pre-existing views. It needs to make sense to me. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then obviously it can't be true. Obviously it can't be true. If it, I can't see a reason why God would, if he's so good and he's all powerful, then it doesn't make sense to me that he would let anything bad happen. And therefore he can't, he's either not good or he's not all powerful. Or, hey, maybe he is both. And maybe even though you can't, you can't understand and find a reason why he would let bad things happen and yet still be himself good and wise, maybe, maybe there is a reason and you just don't know it. Maybe you just don't know it. But he is good and wise and all-powerful. They, they reject the wisdom of Jesus. Pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up my cross. Live the way that you lived that guaranteed your death that's, that's not wise. No, I should live. I should live in a way that protects my life, <laughs> secures my security. To love my enemy, to bless those who curse me, to forgive endlessly. You know what? I, I tried a little bit of that thing. I, I'm, I'm a Greek and I tried a little bit of that thing. I, I thought that maybe sounded interesting, counterintuitive. So you know what? I, 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 have, this, I have this husband who, who I don't like and I don't trust and I don't feel like he loves me anymore and he's wronged me. I really feel embittered. I feel like I've got a real case against him. And so, you know, for a little while, I tried to be nice to him. I told him I forgive him. I was patient with him. And you know what? He ain't no better. He's still good for nothing. This stuff, that's not wise. It doesn't work. It's not effective. So, uh-uh, I reject that. In their proud eyes, the Jews rejected Jesus because he wasn't the kind of God that they want. And they, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they rejected Jesus because he's not the kind of God that they want. It's stupid. He's stupid. Knowing, however, knowing nothing but the gospel, you can have all the wisdom and power that you could ever need. Keep that rolling in your head. Verse 23, but Paul says, we preach Christ crucified which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is. He doesn't just, he doesn't just say the wisdom of God. He doesn't just say wise, godly things, and he just, doesn't just do powerful, godly things. He embodies the wisdom and power of God. He is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. If God could be stupid, if he could be dumb, on God's dumbest day, he's still, he's still infinitely wiser and smarter than the wisest human. And if God could be weak, and by the way, God made himself weak in Christ. He made himself humbled. On God's weakest day, let's say the cross, his weakness is still more powerful than even Satan himself. Here, Paul says, here's the difference. Here's the difference. 
what we preach, this message that saves us through belief, it's the gospel. It's really true. We preach Christ crucified. This foolish sounding ineffective message, that's what we preach. That's what we're holding on to. That's where we start and end with. The mere suggestion for the Jews that the Messiah would die at the hands of his enemies rather than defeat, them, defeat his enemies, that's a stumbling block to them. It trips them up. It thwarts their wisdom. It short circuits them. And for the Greeks, the mere suggestion that God would do and say such things, that just sounds so stupid to them. And the message of the cross trips them up and their wisdom is thwarted. The problem for them, the problem here that separates a Christian and a non-Christian, the difference here is not one of ethnicity or culture. The Jews don't reject Christ because they're Jews. The Gentiles don't reject Christ because they're Greek. And by the way, this covers the whole world. Those two groups covers the whole world. That's Jews and then not Jews. We're Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. And in fact, specifically, West, modern Western culture is deeply rooted and embedded in a, an ancient foundation laid by the Greeks. Western culture is built on the philosophy and the rationality and the reasoning of Greek culture from thousands of years ago. But it's not ethnicity that makes someone more likely or less likely to believe. Because Paul makes that clear. He makes it clear that Jews and Gentiles do get saved by the message of the cross. That's in verse 24. Both Jews and Greeks get saved by the power of God in the message of the cross. You know how? Do you know why? There's a really special word here. It's the word called. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, those who are called, there is a, there's a command to come, to approach, to receive. There's a beckoning, an invitation, and it's authoritative. It's not would you like to come here? It's come here. And those who believe are people who are called. Who does the calling? God. He, he either does it miraculously through a voice from the clouds, right? Or he does it through a, a, a skinny guy who, who talks really fast and for a really long time. He does it through an ancient text like this. He does it over coffee through a friend. He does it in any number of ways, but God is the one who calls. And the call is authoritative. And those he, he calls, they respond, they come. And yes, most, most definitely, non-Christians who stay in unrepentance and they reject Jesus their whole life and they enter into eternity in that, in that rejecting of God, they were called, God, God made the welcome. But throughout the Bible, there's a very clear, there, there's a very clear difference. There's a clear different type of calling. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless my Father draws them. The Greek word that Jesus says there is drawn. It's the same Greek word for drawing water out of a well. How do you get water out of a well? You, you call it, right? You call it up with a bucket. You don't go, get up here, water. That's not an effective calling. Although you tell it, get up here. No, you have to send down a bucket and the water won't come up unless you draw it to you. And this call here, this is the effective call of 
God himself, the Father, drawing those who do belong to him. They don't yet, but they will. That's him drawing them. That's what makes you a believer. That's how God does that. It's not your ethnicity. It's not the higher likelihood and possibility that because you're Caucasian, you're more likely to be, believe in this Jesus. No, or that you're black, or that, no, your ethnicity has nothing to do with that, obviously. The weakest acts of God shows mankind's combined power and might as truly pathetic. And he does that every time a Christian is saved and made into a child of God because we don't deserve it. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. There's that word again. What is it? Calling. When he says consider, he's saying, listen, remember how you got saved. Remember what God did. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many of you were powerful according to worldly standards. Not many of you were of noble birth according to worldly standards. Now, Paul's, he's making sure to remove at least one big major difference explanation. He's taking this off the table. There's something, what makes me a Christian? What's the difference between me and, and a non-Christian? He's taking at least one explainer off the table. He's already said, it's not that your, your ethnicity doesn't matter. And here, you need to know, it's not because somehow innately in your natural born self, you are somehow better. It's not because you are somehow better. More specifically, it's not because you were wise enough to believe the gospel. Paul reminds them, he's telling them, there we go again. Paul reminds them to remember their calling. Remember that God drew you. You didn't draw God toward you. He drew you. Not many who believe are of super high intelligence. Not many who believe are super strong, super disciplined, and have amazing willpower. Throughout history, in my life, in the Bible, the vast majority of Christians, at least according to worldly standards, are not well put together. We're not. We don't tend to be an awesome people. We tend to be the bad news bears. Really rough around the edges. Got a lot of work to do. All right? Paint's chipping off. We're often, we often look hypocritical because we often are hypocritical. We often look like we're talking about both sides of our mouth because we are. Because we say we believe this and then we act like we believe that. We're messed up. There are more, there are more by larger percentage. There are far more weak, needy, disturbed, broken, and humbled Christians in the kingdom than there are extremely well-adjusted, extremely healthy in body, heart, and mind. Not many of the believers come from great families of prestige and honor. There are plenty of Christians who had a bad home life. They, they, they weren't raised by parents who loved them as they ought to have and supported them as they ought to have. There are plenty of Christians who weren't raised in a Christian household and their own parents didn't know Christ. There are plenty of Christians who come from families of cycles of abuse and violence and neglect. And Paul's saying, remember that. Don't forget that. God saw you and he knew, he knew exactly who you are and where you come from and 
he called you. Paul's going to use another word, not only call, but he's going to use kind of its partner word. He's going to use it three times in, the next, in this next few verses. And he's using that word as the difference maker between the unsaved and the saved. Do you know what that word is? Chose. God chose. And those whom God chose, he also called. Have you heard that before in the Bible? That comes from, yeah, Paul, Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 8, didn't he? He says, those whom God predestined, he also called. Whoa, 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 predestined, whoa, hold on. Don't worry. In the Greek, predestined only means predestined. That's all it means. Don't, don't. It means before you and I, if you're in Christ, if we're in Christ, before you and I made a choice and we do make a choice. And we make a choice, and it matters. We have to make a choice, right? Don't hear me say that, right? We have to make a choice. But before we choose God, he chooses us. Unless he chooses me, I'm, I'm going to be incapable of choosing him. And those whom he has chosen, he's faithful, he's good. He goes, I've chosen you. He doesn't fail to send the invite. I want you at my party. And then I don't invite you? No, no, no. That goes, you're mine. Come here. And he does it authoritatively, and he draws you, because now that he's chosen you, you belong to him. Now, we're going to return to that in a couple seconds, this procession of truths from Romans chapter 8. But for now, if, if you're a saved believer, it's because God chose you and then called you, and you responded. And that response is absolutely necessary. I'm just going to argue here for half a second. I don't have enough time to really get into this fully, but I've spoken on this plenty of times, and I'll be happy to sit down and talk about this all the time with you if that's what you want. But the, your choice, your choosing, your decision to believe in Jesus is a real choice, and that is a real function. It's a, it's a, it's a volitional act of your will. You believe in Jesus because at that moment you wanted you did something that you want. It's real. But the, the scriptures scream out clearly that the decisive choice that's made, the one that decides the thing, is God's choice and not my choosing. The decisive. My choice is absolutely necessary. It's crucial. But my choice doesn't decide the thing. My choice confirms the thing. My, cho my choice is the volitional will willing desire of me confirming that god really does love me i really am saved because otherwise i would not want him and you can go read john chapter 3 you can go read romans chapter 3 about what the human heart apart from god's love does toward god for now if you're a saved believer it's because god chose you and then he called you and why is why is god doing that why is god Choosing and calling us. He's got a purpose. He's got a reason. The people that God chooses, again, Paul just made clear, according to the world standards, we are people that don't belong on anybody's A team, on anybody's B team, or even C, D, or E team, right? 
Like, I'm not, this is not false humility. So, so don't hear me bashing myself and come to my defense or accuse me of being you know, inauthentic, but even in my own circle of pastors who I run with and we're friends and we do stuff, I am not the first person to be picked to stand before the group and deliver a message. I'm, I'm, I'm much lower down on that list. And honestly, for good reasons. We are not, according to worldly standards, anything special. Why would God do that? Why would he work this way then? Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God wants to shame the wise. God chose. He selected. He ordained. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, even things that are nothing, in order to bring to nothing, in order to delete the things that seem to be something so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen lowly people, unimpressive people, fallen people, humiliated people, crippled people, broken people, sick people, people captivated by sin and, and temptation, he's, he's chosen them. And he's chosen what the world finds offensively stupid and pathetically weak and powerless. To do what? To put those who believe they are wise apart from him to shame. To put to shame those who believe that they are powerful in and of themselves apart from God. To shame those that think they know better than God to shame those who think they can do better than God. See, this is the sermon of the world. He needs to get out of my face. Get out of my face. You keep it in your pulpit, you keep it in your pew, but you don't take it into public. You don't take it into your job. If you're a judge, you can't take your Christian worldview, you can't take this God with you and, and, and let, let that let him influence how you deliberate. You have to leave that behind. Get him out of here. He doesn't belong here. Him and you need to get out of our face and out of our way and let us finally get around to moving humanity forward. Because you guys, him, he's stupid in his ways, ineffective, nonsensical. You Christians are backwards. You're crazy. You're goofy. You're not cool. You're on the wrong side of science. You're on the wrong side of philosophy. You're on the wrong side of history. So you'd better get out of the way or you'll be sorry. Get out of my face with this God stuff. God intends to put every single one under that belief, under that heart, to shame. And he's going to do it with the very people that the world hates and says are stupid. God has chosen apparently foolish and weak people to accomplish his purpose of shaming those who boast in themselves. Of those who boast in human power, human ingenuity, human wisdom. Because God hates 
boasting. God hates boasting. He abhors boasting. He loathes boasting. Someone got me a thesaurus as a present the other day, so I'm putting it to use. He hates it, despises it, spits it out of his mouth. Psalm chapter 138, verse 6. James chapter 4, verse 6. Isaiah 2, chapter 12. Romans 1, 21 through 23. Go back and listen to the podcast so you can get those notes because I said it really fast. I'm not going to repeat them. Go look them up because they, along with hundreds of other scriptures, along with the entirety of this entire book, puts on display that God hates and is opposed to the proud. He hates above all things the proud. Those who would boast and put forth themselves putting what they perceive to be the glory of their own thinking and wisdom, the glory of their own power and effectiveness, and going, look at me, God. I'm at least half as good as you. I'm, I'm, I'm as good as you. Who needs you? I can be smart. I can do cool stuff. I don't need you. Us and humanity, we're great. Humanity's gotten so much better. We don't need, we've moved past, we've, we've evolved past the need for religion. We've Paul's evolved past the need for a God. And God hates pride, self-righteousness, self-exaltation, self-centeredness, self-worship, and self-dependence, independence from God. And he doesn't want anyone to boast in his presence. And God is omnipresent. He's, all, he's in all places and all times. So every time, whether it's out loud or in the, in the quiet of your own heart, God hates that boasting. And he's going to put that, he's going to put the heart of that boasting to shame. So this comes with a warning to the professing Christian. Do not for one second believe. If you believe in Jesus, do not want for one second believe that you are saved because of some sort of quality of your faith or wisdom or spiritual will. You did not save yourself with that. You made a real choice of salvation and you exercised faith and you exercised willpower and you exercised wisdom. But specifically, you must not believe that there was some sort of faith or wisdom or willpower that's natural to you that you had apart from God, that you exercised to believe. You can't believe that you are somehow wiser than a non-Christian. Why did I believe in Jesus? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I made a wise decision. It seemed, it seemed right to me. It seemed wise. It's, I saw, it made sense. The gospel made sense to me. I don't know what's wrong with these unwise and foolish and, you know, unreasonable non-Christians. They just don't see it. But, I mean, I see it. You know why you see it? Because God gave you eyes to see it. You didn't give yourself those eyes to see it. He says, remember your calling, brothers and sisters. Remember the choice of God. Remember the purpose of God. Because Christ says, I have not come for those who think they're wise, who think they're smart, who think they're healthy. Because if I come to them and help them, they reject me anyhow. I have come to those who know that they are naked and ashamed and weak and failing. Those who know they need saving. That's who he comes for. Verse 30. 
and become and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God righteousness sanctification redemption so that it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord there's our return to Romans chapter 8 verse 30 those whom he chose he called and those those are the people he also justifies and glorifies those are the people he justifies and glorifies he justifies he justifies those who have sinned wildly, recklessly, and wickedly, disgustingly. He justifies them. He calls them just because of their faith in his crucifixion, forgiving them of their sin. He also glorifies the inglorious. He glorifies the, de the, the detestable by covering their sin and forgiving them and making them his, in his family. So because of Jesus Christ, as he, as he becomes your wisdom now, as he becomes your source of righteousness, as he becomes the, the operating heavy lifter of your sanctification, which is growing in holiness, and as Jesus becomes your redemption, you are redeemed, you are acceptable in God's presence because of Jesus' acceptability, you have salvation. So the faith that it takes to believe is Jesus' faith given to you. And the, the wisdom that it takes to believe is his wisdom given to you. And the righteousness you have is Christ's righteousness laid on top of you. And the sanctification, the growth that you must and will experience, that's, that's the evidence of God doing heavy lifting. And the redemption you have is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. And that that leads to the only way and the best way that, that a man or woman can boast. The sin isn't boasting. The sin isn't who and what you boast in. To boast in the Lord. Look how wise he is. He brings the plans of princes and presidents to ruin. He thwarts them. Look how powerful he is. He overcomes pharaohs and Pharisees and Satan himself. And he's winning our fights for us fights that we cannot win for ourselves. Look how gracious and, and merciful and kind and generous and patient and long-suffering he is that he would love and keep loving me. He doesn't stop loving me. He didn't, he didn't get tired of forgiving me. That's absurd. That's unbelievable to me. And if you think I'm, I'm exaggerating that and trying to be the humble, pretend humble pastor in your presence, then you don't know me good. You don't know me good. I know me. Those close to me know me good. And it's absurd. God almost seems stupid to have chosen me, called me, and keep choosing me, and keep calling me back. How great is he? Is how loving, how gracious. Look at him. The worst people in the world have the greatest God. That's, that's good boasting. That's boasting that makes you happy. That's boasting. That's boasting that saves those who are boasting in themselves. Because to them, those who God chooses and calls, then they'll get eyes to see. And then they will see. And they'll go, what I'm boasting is small and foolish. And it's stupid. It's powerless. It's futile. And what she's boasting in. Oh, I finally get... Yeah, you're right. He is great. What was, what was up with my mind? Remember last week when I mentioned the guy who got saved, who had been reading the Bible his whole life, 
And then he asked his pastor, hey, when did the, when did the second version of the Bible get written? It, it didn't. It's just the same Bible. But he, he was seeing it differently because God did something to him. And now Paul's word lead us to some concluding truths and, and responses for us. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you with a TED talk. I didn't come to you with gimmicks. I didn't, I didn't come to you trying to impress you with like really complex reasoning and rationality. He says, I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not saying he forgot everything he learned about science or dressing himself or eating or, you know, how to heat up a Pop-Tart. But what he, he's saying is, I chose to know nothing. I chose to make nothing in what I taught you central except Christ crucified. I didn't come to you with religious studies and views, moral views based off of God on how you ought to deal with politics or race or money. I didn't come at you with that. Everything I've taught you about any of those things has come from Christ crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I was with you in much fear, weakness, trembling. Paul put on display his suffering. He put on, he put on display his ignorance. He put on display his need to pray and ask God what to do because when he was with them, there was tough stuff happening and Paul didn't have all the answers. And he put that on display for them. I was with you. You didn't know, I, neither did I. I trembled. I was in prayer. I'm trembling. God, please help us. Please save us. And my speech and my message were not in plausible, worldly, reasonable words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and of power. What seemed foolish at the time. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So last week I ended the sermon describing to you a period of about two and a half, maybe not quite three months of some darkness for me, some difficulty for me earlier this year. And I, I was really hesitant about whether or not I was going to put that in because I, to talk about it honestly makes me feel ashamed. It makes me feel ashamed because was it the root, part of what's at the root of that time for me was not simply that I was sick or tired, but at the root of that, was an ex extremely low exercise of faith. Forgetting what is ahead of me and going back to what should be left behind. Leaving off of crying out to God and, then, and instead making alliances with Egypt's in my life, in my head and heart. And I was hesitant to share it with you because it, it makes me feel embarrassed, it makes me feel ashamed because I think a pastor should be better than that. And I... I was worried and concerned that maybe it, sharing that with you would also probably erode your trust in me and your ability to, to let me keep, keep being a pastor because you can't, man, you can't really trust a guy who's going to go through something like that. I mean, yeah, wow, that's just, that's strike one. That's strike, for some of you, that's like strike 17 with me. And I just want to bear witness to the testimony of God's kindness on you and to you and through you to me. The, the feedback that some of you were able to tell me not that you 
No one came and said, oh man, I really was touched by that. I love you so much more because you shared that. Do you know what I heard more than several times this past week was that some of you were touched and moved and you were emboldened and encouraged. You felt liberated. You felt safer because if God chose and called me to be a pastor and I could be in that sort of thing, then you're not so weird. You're not so alone. You don't have to hide and be scared and, 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 and cower in shame and not bring it forth to anyone, including God. You're, you're actually safe to be a sinner who needs Jesus. And look, that was just me sharing that with you, and I have a pulpit. And each, each and every one of you, if you're a Christian, you have that to share. And look what, that, look what effect it had on you and, and how it served you. That's why, you're, that's why your butts need to be in your community group and live life with one another and find deep relationships and friendships in your church family where you can trust people. And they'll, they'll love you and take you through those things and they won't reject you. I have a few final points here. Let's end this. Here's, what I want you, here's some things I want us to take away. Of all the things you need to know in this life, if you only know and believed the gospel, you'd be the wisest, most powerful person in the world. If you, see thing, if you see things God's way, you don't need a high IQ or a high quality education to live a life of wisdom and power. Don't hear me say, so IQ is nothing and getting an education is stupid. No, I didn't say that. The reason is God in his wisdom has made it so, he's ordained it so, so that a severely, let's say a severely autistic teenage boy in his own mysterious way of understanding and believing, as incredible as that might seem, since it seems so difficult, nearly impossible for a severely autistic person to understand much of anything. But the severely autistic teenage boy that, that God chooses and calls, whether or not we understand what's happening there, that boy will never grow up and get married and live on his own. He'll always have to have a steward He'll always have to have a guardian. He'll, he'll never get married. He's not going to make a kid and carry on the family name. He's not going to write a book or a symphony. And he's not going to build a house. And that doesn't make him unimportant. What I'm telling you is this severely autistic boy, according to the world, and it seems reasonable, is living such a sad, terrible life. And it's so sad that his life is just, oh, it's just so, and it is. But we're seeing things in the world's way with the world's eyes, with the world's wisdom. The severely autistic boy who is chosen and called by Christ is a prince of the universe. And he'll be glorious. And his mind will be sharp. And he will, he'll see. And he will know. And he'll sit and judge angels. And he'll be powerful. And he'll spend all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth building and discovering he may indeed actually wield authority over any one of us in the kingdom forever, and we'll be happy for it. That's what a gospel culture is. That's the place that it is. That you don't need to be super smart, and you don't need to be super highly trained to be effective and useful to Jesus. 
You don't need to wait until you've gone to the right Bible study or gotten more training in evangelism or gone all the way through a systematic theology book before you start telling people about Jesus by boasting about his greatness with your life. And that's so good with words. Okay, well, let's work on that. But with the words you got, those are the words you use. I don't got a lot of money. I can't write. Which, the money you got, that's the money you use. The home that you got, that's what you use because that's what God gives you. It, it's effective and powerful and wise if and only if you know Christ crucified. You can be the wisest, most powerful person in the world. And apart from the gospel, all the intellect, the highest IQ and the highest education you can get even though those, those things are good, they, they, won't, they won't bear fruit and they won't operate. They'll be thwarted because you don't have the wisdom of God. You merely have the wisdom of man and that's gonna get shamed. Number two, lost souls believe not because we're awesome, but because Christ is awesome. If God called you when you were low, small, foolish, weak, he doesn't call you into now a journey of becoming awesome and amazing. He told Paul, Paul, it's in your weakness that my strength is made perfect. It's in your weakness that my strength is made apparent. I know you're sick. You've got some thorn in your side, maybe a demonic attack or whatever it is. I know you don't feel like you can do as much for me with this, with this trial, with this suffering. But I gave you this trial and suffering so that I could do something with you. So you aren't meant to win anyone to Christ or make a stand for the reputation of Jesus by being highly intelligent, superbly informed, well-read, sophisticated, and cool, knowing the perfect words and the perfect comebacks to the arguments and the debates and the mockery of the world. You're meant to win people and overcome the world by trusting that Jesus really does win. So you are now relieved. You're relieved of that. What are the Christian beliefs that you're most tempted to be embarrassed by? What are the things that people in this world talk about, they're debating right now, and they're, they're causing you where you sit to shift your eyes back and forth and kind of hope that you're not the one called upon to speak up for Christianity? What positions does Jesus take that if you were to say them on Facebook or speak up in your classroom or to express them in the workroom, in the break room at work, or even under oath, which of Jesus' positions would you be tempted to hem and haw over? Tempted to keep your mouth shut? Tempted to modify or massage in a way that maybe these people might find more acceptable and not mock you or hate you? That temptation should alert you that there is a weakness and a foolishness of the world that still needs to be put in de to death in you because we are, we are looking at the wisdom and power of God through the worldly eyes, and we call it stupid, and we call him weak. And so on that point, I leave you with a loving, a loving, generous warning from Jesus about that shame for his wisdom. He says in Luke chapter 9, 26, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels.
pray and ask the Lord to cause us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Number three, stop needing the world to approve of your foolishness in Christ. It's holding you back. Stop, stop needing the world to approve of you, to accept you. In one sense, the world ought to approve of Christianity because it's only legitimate to do so if Christians actually walk in Christ. On another level, Christ has already said and promised that the world will hate you because you love me and they'll reject you. So don't be surprised. Stop needing to be cool. Number four, stop trying to win debates. Start trying to win souls. You no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to win arguments and debates. It's not a failure when you get into a conversation with a non-Christian and they bring up something like evolution or human gender and sexuality or biology or politics or logic or science and history and, and they, they stump you. You haven't failed. Just because you didn't win, it's not a failure. As long as what you have to offer is any knowledge you bring is founded on Christ crucified, on the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. And if they are able to claim a clear victory and everyone else agrees, man, they owned you. It looks like God's not real. I mean, you represent them. God's not real. They win. And you feel like an idiot. You don't have to feel like an idiot. Maybe you have learning to do. Maybe you should get more studying. Great, do that. You want to become better equipped. You don't want to be there. I understand that. But you need to, you need to relieve yourself of the responsibility of winning debates and making the point. Because sometimes God isn't interested in you making the point, but instead making a difference. And instead of winning a debate, winning a soul. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, wrote most of the New Testament, right? He got laughed out of town in Athens. He went to preach. And it was a good sermon. It's in the Bible. It's in the book. He goes to Mars Hill, the place where the Greek philosophers and theologians would go and debate and talk and discuss. And he went there and preached one of his best sermons. And they laughed him out of town. Paul didn't plant a church in Athens because he was so embarrassed. They, they, they were not going to believe him. So this doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean we never defend the gospel. It doesn't mean we never get into a conversation. It doesn't mean we don't debate. But it means the purpose of our debate is no longer winning the debate, but winning the soul. So now you can focus. You can look at Jesus' words and works. And he was rejected and killed for those very things. And that itself, the cross, the message of the cross, his greatest defeat is his greatest victory. The gospel is central to all for Christians. We must hold on to this, dive into this constantly, and take the lifelong together committed approach to discerning how do I live in light of the gospel with this money, with this spouse, with this career, with this calamity, with this terrible tragedy in Buffalo, New York, with the terrible tragedies of Ukraine, with the oncoming future tragedies that we don't even see coming. How do we respond? How do we think? How do we feel? What will we say and what will we do as Christians? In the light of the gospel, it's central. Without that, all of our morality and all of our wisdom and all of our reasoning, it's built on sand and the waves are gonna, it's gonna destroy the house. The Christian house is built in the gospel. It's central. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you.
that you would that you would use that you do use what is apparently and clearly foolish and weak I pray that not only would you in your just righteousness not only that you would punish that you would shame and punish the unrepentant that Satan himself would ultimately be defeated in shame in hell but I also pray Lord that you would in your grace shame those of us who ought to feel shame so that we might be brought to repentance and not to destruction pray that your shame would be the healing knife of surgery and that those of us who need it won't have to stay on the surgery bed, the surgery table for any longer than we have to, but we'd be healed and get up free of shame. But I do ask where we are trusting in ourselves in human wisdom and worldly power, I pray, Lord, that you would shame us and draw us out of it and save us with the foolish foolish, foolish word of the cross. Do it for our joy. Do it for the joy of the nations and do it for your glory, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I love you guys.